welcome to Fireside Philosophy on Call-In with me, Jay the Gadfly. I believe we are live, first time using the app, so we will see uh, on reflection, on listening back, whether or not we are rolling. Let's assume we are, and welcome to the show. Obviously, no one is uh, queued up, eagerly awaiting my opinion on the hot topics of the day, you know? <laughs> I'm ready, I got some hot takes. Uh, Ukraine, trans, uh, aliens, UFOs, just let, no, <laughs> that's not going to be this kind of show. I'm not really that kind of person, to be honest. Um, though I enjoy, you know, listening to the news like anyone and knowing what's going on. It's, uh, not quite my interest to be one of these people that, uh, is constantly in the mix of, uh, all the depressing stuff of the day. But we are going to talk a little bit about perhaps the feeling of depression and, uh, how that relates to certain philosophical ideas, and in particular, uh, the N-word, nihilism, uh, the one that we are all maybe familiar with the feeling, but maybe we maybe we don't all have a good understanding of really what that term refers to in terms of our existential uh, philosophical views. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I just want to say, um, if you are listening to this on my YouTube channel, I likely will put it there, uh, Beats by Gadfly. That's where typically my beats and music live, obviously amateurish as uh, one can be, but this is something I also want to be doing on the call-in app because it seems like honestly just a fun thing to do, so I might archive this on my YouTube, and if you're hearing it there, uh, call-in is an app you can download on iPhone and Android now, thankfully, uh, my <laughs> my filthy Samsung um, can finally download this, this product, even though I think Android's great, I don't know why iPhone is considered, or Apple are considered a more luxury brand, but uh, maybe that'll be a topic for another time. But if you want to join in, I'm going to have a segment, a few segments where um, I'll uh, absolutely would love some call-in input from any listeners, and uh, there'll be moments for that. Uh, but because we are, of course, starting out at the beginning here, uh, most of the show has been planned, and I have some texts that I will read today uh, on the topic of nihilism and the meaning of life. Obviously, uh, very easy to address topics in about an hour. So we are in good uh, spirits and uh, no doubt this will be an easy thing to do. We'll solve all your life problems in the next hour. That's the promise of every guru social media talk is just, <laughs> I will fix every problem in your life in the next five minutes. No, uh, we won't be doing that, but we will be at least getting clear perhaps about certain feelings that, you know, many philosophies, particularly, you might say, uh, Eastern philosophies, Buddhism, perhaps more precisely, uh, do address um, these more participatory ways of finding knowledge. And, um, and it might serve as a nice antidote to uh, the nihilistic uh, urge. And it has just occurred to me now, I've actually forgotten one of my books, but uh, I'll get that when I need to, because it'll be in the second part. So that's fine. Anyway, Let's jump into it. As I said, there'll be uh, moments for uh, some feedback and some questions that I'd love to hear. But first thing I'm going to read, actually, is an essay on nihilism. Um, it's not an academic one. It's actually one I've written. But the curious thing here is that I actually wrote this like five years ago. So I would have been 20, maybe, or 21, just, just turning uh, that formative year in Australia here. Um, we consider that quite a big deal. Your 21st is usually when... Uh, the wheels start to come off and you go out and you have a nice loose time. Um, and, you know, it's also just, a, I guess for everyone, it's it's just a very different 
period of your life. Because for the first time, you're now probably being considered an adult, whatever that means. Just physically, you're just more imposing and people just react to you differently than they did two or three years ago when you were a quote-unquote a student or a quote-unquote child. Um, and it was honestly not the best time for me. I was actually looking back, uh, I can say with a good sense of humor that I was probably more miserable than I should have been. And I was more pulled by the feeling of nihilism. I actually was much more convinced of the philosophical truth of nihilism. I, uh, and I should get clear about the, the definitions here. So when I'm using that term, I'm talking about existential nihilism, the feeling that life is meaningless. This would be the, the, the argument that a nihilist would make. Life is truly meaningless because there's no place to stand outside of the universe where we can say, uh, we can justify its existence. It just simply um, isn't self-justifying in a way, um, unless we decide that maybe we have some faith that we're here for a reason or something. But the nihilist would say, that's kind of stupid. That's kind of not logically coherent. And I'm, and though, you know, I can... I can um, be a little bit uh, amused by the concept of faith. I can be pulled into it sometimes. I'm not a religious person, but um, I do like the idea of faith. I ultimately, I ultimately do probably side with the nihilist there because I do like to think logic should rule the day. Logic should guide our moral actions, our behavior. But it's hard to it's hard to live with that if that's true, right? Life is meaningless. I mean, <laughs> that's quite a morbid idea um, in in a way because you know what is meaning? Well, meaning is a highly subjective term. We can find meaning in all sorts of, and maybe maybe meaning is something inherently human, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself still here too. And I wanted to, I just want to differentiate that existential nihilism from something like moral nihilism, which is another kind of nihilism. Moral nihilism would be the idea that moral values don't have any like significance in making a, making decisions. So you know, if someone wants to say that suffering is bad intrinsically, therefore we should try to alleviate the most suffering in the world where we can. Um, the, the moral nihilist would say, um, that's, a, that's a, you can't do that. You can't balance these things um, in any kind of equation because they're not mathematical and therefore um, they just simply can't be defined um, without a logical justification. Uh, and yeah, so existential nihilism is, is, is what I want to focus on today. Because it's more, it's more of a metaphysical question, right? And metaphysic, metaphysics, of course, is the philosophy we do beyond what we can physically prove to be true with empirical science. So that's kind of my, and just to be, yeah, that's, those are my interests, to be pretty clear. Metaphysics, moral philosophy, philosophy of mind, and a little bit of analytical philosophy, but that's very difficult stuff. Um, so anyway, let me start reading this essay, and I might just pause at certain parts and and comment on uh, what I might have been thinking at the time, because I actually haven't read this in a long time. So part of this is going to be just me um, remembering what it felt like to um, try to have to battle my nihilism, because the title of this essay is called Confronting Your Nihilism. And so here we go. Um, all right. Oftentimes we feel that life is good. Other times we feel that life is miserable. In fact, we may feel so disappointed in the quality of our life that we begin to doubt the entire project itself. It's possible we may think, my existence of life is awful, so what's the point in continuing it? Isn't it all meaningless in the end, anyway? 
This is an emergence of nihilism, the feeling that life has no ultimate purpose. And though we may experience thoughts of nihilism to a more or less degree, these doubts about our meaning and our value in the universe influence the perception of our quality of life, ultimately undermining our ability to improve our life situation when it does cause us to experience negative emotions. So, given that we all experience thoughts of nihilism at some point in our life, how should we best navigate this problem if it is indeed a problem to begin with? The truth is, there is a considerable amount of suffering which is packaged in with a human life. Instances which induce negative emotion are almost guaranteed. Moments of sudden financial stress, catching a debilitating illness, or having some reminder of death spontaneous, spontaneously emerge, no matter how fortunate one's life is now, tragic and unexpected events are almost certain to occur at some point in the future. Okay, I might, I might just pause here, so um, that's the start of the essay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you might, might get a clear idea of kind of what I was feeling at the time, is that uh, I wasn't really sure about certain things in terms of my own grounding groundingness in the, in my own subjective experience, I guess. So I was very convinced, not convinced, but certainly like when I'm, when I'm writing this essay, I'm probably like in the rehab of nihilism. I'm probably trying to come out of it a little bit, but, um, certainly, um, in, in the years, maybe just prior, just the months prior, even, um, I was probably really consumed and convinced that nihilism was this logically sound and airtight idea. Um, and the, the issue with coming to that conclusion is that it's assuming a, a certain, um, you know, level of comprehension of the human mind, that we can really be certain of such metaphysical grand questions. And this is interesting because, like, this comes back to some of the roots of philosophy, which is the Socratic method and the um, Socratic irony, which is the notion that you, uh, you are aware of what you don't know, um, you're, you are aware of the gap between what you don't know and what also could be possible. So, uh, in other words, the notion that life is meaningless. I mean, is that question even comprehensible to a human uh, mind, to a, to a primordial brain that's certainly limited in all sorts of ways that we can acknowledge, right? Our eyes can only see certain parts of the color spectrum, um, or the light spectrum, rather. Uh, you know, our senses are limited in all kinds of ways uh, in terms of our ability to hear sounds, right? We compare that to the senses of a bat and we get basically, <laughs> we, we, we get made a fool out of, right? In terms of, or a dog even, um, especially smell. So, so we just have to acknowledge that our sense, our sensual, sensual, sensual sorry, uh, experience. Oh my goodness, what a word. Let me have a sip of coffee as I stumble my asses. Um, okay. I can see you there, Brett, in the in the listener uh, audience there. Thank you for tuning in, my man. Um, if you'd like to stick around for a question um, after I read this essay, that would be great. But if not, that's fine too. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back to Fireside Philosophy. Um, so yeah, and also I think what I'm thinking about here, instances which induce negative emotion are almost guaranteed. I've sort of, uh, you know, just give more background about, I guess, my intellectual development. I was a YouTube, I was raised on YouTube, the, the early YouTube where there was a lot of atheism. Um, there was a lot of uh, discussion around grand religious metaphysical questions. And it was very interesting because the, looking back, it was it was really one-sided. There wasn't quite a balance. Um, there, there wasn't a really a mature debate happening, but my younger self didn't really see that and, and was sort of convinced that atheism was 
the only possible truth, the only logical truth, the only moral truth. And I was, uh, and I, though I still respect the man greatly, and I think he uh, is sorely missed, Christopher Hitchens um, was very focused on the problems of religious extremism. And it's certainly problems to be focused on. But if we have no groundingness in this cosmos beyond logical propositions, I just, it's, it's very difficult to give people, uh, or certainly myself, I'll speak for myself, it's certainly hard for me to feel like life matters in, in, in a true way. I think a guy like Christopher Hitchens pro- might have act- overestimated how easy it was for him to live a fulfilling, um, complete and um, verbose, uh, f- just a complete life. That guy like lived in such a way that, you know, clearly he had a fun time. Um, but at this, on the same token, I think he may have overestimated how, how, um, how smart he was and how smart the rest of us were, because it just seems like, uh, or not, not smart maybe, but how uh, effortless he kind of found his path as a writer, as a journalist, right? He lived his, you know, it's very rare for most of us, I think, to pick one thing, to stick with it, to evolve the craft over our lifetime. And I think it's just worth acknowledging. It's helpful to have a bit of a guiding path. And us atheists, I still consider myself probably an atheist, if, if you have to put money on it, right? If you're going to give me betting odds, um, I'm probably going to lean to the side of atheism simply because the uh, science is just an overwhelming um, tool for knowledge. And that's it's, it's hard to dispute that. But on the same token, uh, that's not incompatible with the idea that we still should care about and and be passionately connected to our lived experience in the cosmos now. There's actually no contradiction there, but it becomes harder because it does seem like as human beings that have evolved for certain uh, for certain memes and storytelling ideas, um, it's hard to sort of give that to people that they are um, that that you are a miracle despite the fact that you're not the center of the universe and that there are hundreds of billions of other planets and maybe there is no god um sky daddy looking after you it's okay you're still a spectacular miracle regardless it's hard to balance that perhaps um so there you go there's one idea uh, i think i was trying to battle but let's continue if we accept, this is back to the essay quote, if we accept that adversity and undesirable experiences are inevitable, then our response to feelings of distress can be fundamentally different. For example, it is a fact that the people you love most in this world will die. If you're lucky, the deaths will not be a surprise. You will have the opportunity to gradually accept the idea of the loss of their presence and say your goodbyes. But oftentimes, however, this is not the case. In fact, though we blissfully ignore it, Ignore it, death is always a possibility, in every moment, both for ourselves and those around us. Only when we forget this fact about death's omnipresence should it become a surprising event. The certainty about the death of our loved ones, however, can be a source of stability. Negative emotions and distress will still arise when such an experience occurs, but the sense that we've undergone something unfair, that we are the victim of some cosmic injustice, can fall away. Much of our deepest suffering is born out of this feeling, as if the world were conspiring to make every second of our lives miserable. But when we are mindful of death's omnipresence and inevitability, we can cut through this illusion, viewing it as simply a natural occurrence, as a fundamental aspect of life itself, rather than as some force of malevolence that we hopelessly attempt to avoid. Alright, I'll, I'll end quote there, I'll bracket that out. Um... Okay, I forgot about this part, actually. <laughs> and and I want to say one thing about 
I don't, I don't agree with this. I, I don't agree with the part of it. I should say. I think, I, I think, I, I can see what I was trying to say, but like, um, <laughs> the part where it's like death is always a possibility in every moment. This is something I've, I, I recognize was another symptom of my negative emotion uh, at the time, perhaps. But it's, it's just not the case. It's not present in every moment. But um, I mean, in the sense that you know, you can have a heart attack, you can have a stroke, you can have a, you know, bright. Your brain can just have a full for error error 404 glitch out and um maybe that's gg right but at the same time you do think that there there's certain scales of danger there's certain like um spectrums of risk right and you're simply not simply it's just not the case if you're justifying your inaction and your indifference by referring to the fact that well i could die so i'm going to i'm going to smoke that cigarette today because I could die tomorrow, like, I could get hit by a bus, you know, people do say that. I have an uncle, I have an auntie, I have cousins, we all have family members that say these things, right? Um, to justify their vices. I say it to myself to justify my vices, of course. I am not, I am not at, at all um, excluded from that. You know, it's just, when we look back, do we think that's reasonable? Do we think that's reasonable to say, well, I'm, I could die at any moment, so therefore, let me induce this temporary pleasure that actually will we know result in a, um, earlier, uh, well, at least be a comorbidity for some earlier malady. And actually, uh, the other thing I wanted to say was interestingly, I wrote this before, of course, there was a global pandemic. Um, and also now the potential world war three scenario that we all find ourselves in. Um, and the reminder that history happens right now, as opposed to, um, on schedule when we like it. So, it's also worth thinking about that, I suppose, because the feeling of nihilism comes from the f a connection to a world that feels kind of lost and in chaos, I suppose. And it's easy for us to be... I think it's much... Five years ago, perhaps, that feeling was not as widespread, and you could really make the case that things were looking up. And in five years ago before that, like 2010, you could make that case even stronger, I think. And maybe there's a question to be had too here that like maybe things aren't necessarily worse at all. It's just simply the case that uh, the rate of information is is significantly magnified and accelerated. So we just know so much more about both the triumphs and the tragedies. And if you're only connected to the uh, tragedies, you might be deluded into thinking that's all there is. Anyway, we'll go back to the essay here. Um, I hope this is interesting, but um, I hope I'm using my philosophy degree for something. I'm just going to unlock my phone because I'm scared that it stopped recording. So hopefully I'm still broadcasting here. Okay. I've got a weird setup here, guys. The phone is in a coffee cup. And um, <laughs> and uh, so if you hear that dinging, I'm sorry. I'm, I need to position the microphone. I think the way Apple people do it is that they're, they're broadcasting from their computers with their uh, their beautiful microphones. I don't know how to get this app on my computer, so I have to use my phone. Uh, maybe we'll figure that out for a future uh, episode, but that's okay. <laughs> let's get back to the essay. Um, and again, um, let's see, we're about halfway through. So if you want to stick around for a question in just a moment, I'll go a little quicker so I can get to the other text as well. I think I'm dawdling a bit, but I'm having fun. So I don't know, maybe this is interesting. Anyway, quote, this certainty about, oh, I said that, uh, quote, no doubt some part of you will find this reminder of death depressing, but how valid is this feeling really? You might have thought, given the odds of me dying tomorrow are the same as me dying 10 years from now, what's the point of me doing anything in the end? 
This is precisely the feeling of nihilism we wish to confront, since it is born out of a confusion about what constitutes meaning in one life, in one's life. Let's take a moment to examine that question we all ponder. What is the meaning of life? It's the title of this episode. That's one. <laughs> That's one meaning. No matter how deeply our mind craves an answer here, we are unlikely to ever find one. This is because the question itself is a trick, luring us into thinking that the universe has something called a quote-unquote meaning which must be discovered, or else. Life is meaningless. That is, if the universe does not provide us with a clear explanation about the purpose of human life, then it is deduced our individual lives, our relationships, and all the experiences that a human life entail are ultimately meaningless. I might read that part again because I think that's sort of my contention here. That is, if the universe does not provide us with a clear explanation about the purpose of human life, then it is deduced our individual lives, our relationships, and all the experiences that a human life entail are ultimately meaningless. Do you see the problem here? If we frame our conception of meaning in this way, by shouting and hollering at the deaf ears of the cosmos, we create a feeling of nihilism which is impossible to address, a void that the universe must somehow figure out how to fill. The issue here is that the sensation of meaning arises within consciousness. We feel it when our minds are content with our life circumstance, when our desires about what life should be are in harmony with how it is. Only when we are distracted by negative emotion, when our minds are restless and resistant to whatever is occurring, do we crave some quote-unquote higher purpose or some quote-unquote ultimate justification for the whole endeavor. Only when we are unsatisfied with our quality of mind can we coherently experience existential doubts, for they are predicated on the notion that the world should be different to what it is, that the universe owes us some grand final explanation for why we have to get out of bed in the morning. The cosmos is, however it is, and no amount of existential angst felt by one particular species of primate can change it, fundamentally. To see how empty these concerns really are, try to imagine... Okay, I'll just bracket this, because I probably wrote this as well when I was feeling like um, I really had to beat down the, the nihilist philosophy, and uh, truthfully, I don't feel that passionately about it anymore, so I don't like how I've used this kind of very emotive language to see how empty these concerns are. It's like, mm, that's a bit unnecessary. They're not empty, but they're, they're real feelings and people feel them all the time and it causes them to either consume their vices or um, just act out and to have a fight with a loved one, with a friend, um, to or even a stranger. You know, we ideally, if we're taking the Buddhist notion of right uh, right speech, right action, we're never, you know, having a quote-unquote Karen moment. We're always treating everyone we come into as beautiful spectrums of conscious being that we have to worship and, and make sure that we're appreciating and taking care of and uh, all these good things. So I don't think it's quite empty. I think it's a real feeling and I think you've got to be serious about it. So I do, again, disagree with this part, but I'm being a bit rhetorical, as, as one can tell. Anyway, almost at the end here, to see how empty these concerns really are, try to imagine what would satisfy them. For instance, how would a universe that had a clear quote-unquote meaning or quote-unquote purpose to it be structured? Would there be a god with some ultimate plan? But then we must explain the purpose of that god. Why was he brought into existence? What about a world without death, where all sentient beings lived for eternity? But we would still experience existential doubts in that case, especially with all the time in the world at our disposal. So the fact that we di that the fact that we die isn't enough to explain why we have these worries about our value in the cosmos. 
Um, I'll just quote out there. So I think ultimately that's what nihilism is, is a feeling that we don't have value or that this life doesn't have value or that this universe doesn't have value because of all these um, facts that I'm sort of going through now. I'm doing something similar that Thomas Nagel does in his essay, The Absurd, which I want to talk about in a little bit, where he goes through the various reasons for why people justify their nihilism, their feelings of nihilism, their feelings of meaning, meaninglessness and, uh, and valuelessness. And this is, uh, you know, really ultimately something we don't feel, for instance, when we're dancing, right? Or when we're doing something that's very, like, why do human beings listen to music? Why do human beings play music? Why do human beings paint? Why do we do these really illogical things um, that don't have any rational justification? Well, we do it because it's intrinsically pleasurable. It's a part of the participation where the knowledge is um, becomes more powerful than just logical prepositions, you might say. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. I'm, I'm, and Nagel's going to do it far better. So my rhetoric isn't a, quite as on the on par, of course. Um, but let's keep going. So the next, uh, the next notion is uh, the simulation. What is if uh, some believe our universe is a simulation? Then human life would have a clear purpose to it, to serve our programmers, of course. But we would never be satisfied with merely existing as a video game for some other form of life to enjoy. And so the doubts about our value would endure. Even if we were handed a brochure at the moment of birth, illustrating in great detail the structure of the universe and humanity's role in the whole arrangement, outlining the ultimate purpose of our individual lives, it seems we would still experience existential doubts about our meaning and our value. No matter how the universe appears to us, we will still experience thoughts of nihilism. This is because we crave a form of transcendent meaning when all the while we cannot even imagine what it would be. This shows that these thoughts of nihilism are ultimately empty with respect to determining how the world actually is. Alternatively, we can view these teleological desires, um, just in case uh, for the non-philosophy nerds out there, teleological just means purpose, so the desires about our purpose. We can view these teleological desires, our yearning for a special place in the universe, as a symptom of human psychology, something which evolved in our particular form of consciousness, consciousness rather than as a genuine reflection of how meaningful life actually is. It's no surprise that we crave meaning in our deepest moments of despair, but the goal is to avoid indulging these feelings of nihilism, as they are undoubtedly an illusion, and undermine our capacity to sincerely address what is causing us to experience despair in the first place. To allow a vacuous sense of cosmic injustice to interfere with your life, to let a single thought, a specter of language in the mind, prevent you from deriving meaning, love, joy, and bliss from what's right here in front of you, that's the challenge worth overcoming. Confronting your nihilism. Okay, that's the end of the essay there. Um, and I'll just say a couple more things. And then, uh, Brett, if you want to ask any, if you want to just, oh, not even a question, if you want to just like add your thoughts, mate, that'd be, uh, love to hear it. But if not, oh, good, I'll just move on to the next um, text. But yeah, I just think I was a little bit dramatic because, again, I was really sort of, I'm trying to fight this feeling within myself. It was, it was a somewhat, somewhat therapeutic thing to write this and to get clear about it. Um, and, I think it's needlessly dramatic because what we're going to see with Thomas Nagel's approach too, and also with the the approach of the Buddhists, is that they, they sort of um, the Buddhists especially like they're, they're if you went to a Buddhist and said you know life is meaningless, they'd just give you like a smile and sort of tap you on the back and say yeah, <laughs> like it's it's fine. Like that there's a there's something you do when you dramatize it where you create significance out of it, and so one of the biggest 
kind of, uh, I think, knockdowns to the nihilist who's a bit depressed and sort of uh, gloomy about the fact that he's figured out or she's figured out um, that life is meaningless, is that you sort of go to them and you say, well, why does that matter? Like, isn't that meaningless? Isn't your suffering then kind of meaningless as well? Why are you suffering about something that's meaningless? Why are you experiencing um, a... Uh, yeah, anyway, so that, that that's sort of a logical um, thing. But if, if a nihilist was being true to the, the, the idea, then maybe we would say the Buddhists are nihilists in the sense that they say that uh, the world is fundamentally emptiness. And there's a, there's, there is a connection there to be drawn that um, we might look at with the next text. I do have to go get my Buddhist text in my room. So before we do that... Um, Brett, did you want to jump in with call, mate? Let me see. Hold on. Let me get phone out of the cup. Um, and how do I do this? Take next call up. Boom. All right. Do you want to unmute yourself, Brett? I think you just hit the uh, unmute button um, in the bottom right corner. Hopefully my microphone's okay, by the way. I actually went for a jog this morning and uh, phone flew out my pocket and smashed on the ground. So I hope I'm not coming through in some ridiculous static or something. Uh, okay, so I think you just, uh, uh, hit that mute button, Brett. Maybe there's a bit of a delay. I know call-in's a bit glitchy on Android, so maybe it's on my end. I'm not sure. All right, well, just give me one second, bro. I'm just going to grab my Buddhist text, and, uh, hopefully when I come back, uh, we can hear. Just one second. Hello, hello. How are we doing? How are we doing, sir? Yeah, not too bad. I missed a good bit. I missed a couple of minutes of what you said. I'm sorry about that. No, no, absolutely. Uh, did you uh, have any thoughts about uh, any of that, mate? Because I, I was waffling on there for a bit. No, you're all right. You're all right. I'm, 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 well, I'm from, I live in Scotland, so um, I'm kind of really slightly different. Are you from America, I'm assuming? No, Australia. Australia? Well, yeah. So, so, but you know, I mean, you sound familiar to your journey on, like, you know, YouTube and things like Christopher Hitchens and that. Yeah. I kind of listen to. Um, I was your nihilism question. So I think I probably went through a similar sort of kind of thing. But see, where my nihilism came actually came from was strengthening my uh, atheism. Oh, okay. Because when I started, I went through a strange period where I don't know. I'm not, not the cleverest person in the world, right? So, not world educators. So you're not going to be very... You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right? no, so yeah. I, I went through this period where... I think I, I was a, an atheist a lot longer than I realised. Right. But you're surrounded by people who know nothing about... I'm, I'm surrounded by people who know nothing about atheism. Where I live in Scotland, did you speak, you know, mention to, say, like a, a Catholic person... You say that I'm an atheist. The first thing they say, oh, basically, you're a president, then, aren't you? So, can, <laughs> can, yeah. A lot of people don't have very much understanding of, like, like I have to explain, no, they're still religious and they still believe. In it. But what yeah. I went through, kind of, men mentally, was, you know, a bit of bitterness, kind of like, I couldn't really understand why people couldn't see what I could see over, you know, not believe, well, not believing in, not believing. So, that also kind of led me to kind of, no, I, no, I think absolutely, yeah. It's very, it's very interesting because the the differences from Australia uh, in in terms of my upbringing, like there are kind of Catholic schools, but for the most part, our public education doesn't focus on religion too much, and 
um, for me, like looking up Christopher Hitchens, that was really kind of the first I'd really been exposed to uh, really looking at the texts themselves. Other than that, I just had religious friends that were like, but it was really, you know, in Australian culture, it just wasn't, it's not really, I think maybe it's different. Yeah. In Scotland and um, with the history there in terms of um, Europe and, and obviously Christian uh, and Catholic history there. And uh, yeah, th that's very fascinating. What, what Like in terms of nihilism. So it's really this feeling that we kind of, I think it's a very human feeling, right? And it's, and it's this idea that, you know, it really doesn't matter this routine of, uh, you know, we eat three meals a day, we sleep and shit and shop ourselves to the grave, right? Like that's kind of the the idea in its its uh, crudest form. Um, but I feel like what you're describing is, is certainly uh, similar to that um, idea, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, kind of like, I, I, I think you uh, when especially when you're trying to lose belief, no, I cannot get rid of beliefs that you know not to be true but mm -hmm. they still dominate your mind you know like um no i obviously was kind of half brought my, my, i've got a strange kind of family setup where mm -hmm. my mum was from a strict catholic um irish sort of catholic background you know like loads mm. of loads of like i've got loads of uncles and aunties and, <laughs> you know, hundreds of them yeah and then on my dad's side which was church of england and you know he, he, he kind of like he, he, I mean he, he could ask my dad about belief in that and he wouldn't have it my mum's side it was very much kind of very strict you know and I was brought up in that. and they'd done a horrendous job um, obviously I mean uh, you could probably try to convince me that their religion was right for, for, mm. for starters mm -hmm. so by the time I got to a point where I just abandoned Catholicism went through that stage where well I think there's something there because if there isn't something there, then there's no point in me existing. Mm. And, and like through all that, you know, with that, which is similar, I think, to what you're saying. It's very kind of absolutely. Um, and also uh, as well, I think sometimes a lot of people through age. I don't know. I don't know how old you are. Twenty-five. Um, Twenty-five. Right. When you get to forty, mm. I went through this stage where I felt like you could be in a conversation. They ask you a question. And you're not even halfway through your answer, and they start talking about sales. You get to a feeling that at certain ages that you become irrelevant. Ah, oh, right. So lo loads of things that start adding up, adding in, and like hold on, my belief. You start. Do you like what? A lot of your beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Beliefs as well, with a load of added things in there, and also like as you talk about, you have days where you feel miserable. And, yeah. You know, what's the bloody all this? You know? Yeah, I, I, and also mental health problems as well. Yes, I, mean, I think yes. people with, with um, depression as well can really fall into nihilism. Absolutely. Well, and that's that's what that's part of what I was sort of um, addressing in that essay. I think is like because it's the logical pull of it uh, in terms of being able to reason yourself into it um, is very compelling and. Um, but really, it's an emotional thing if what it's causing you to do is uh, behave in ways that do make your life more miserable. Uh, it, it's, it's just that simple, because if nihilism is true, that's fine in terms of logical propositions, um, uh, prepositions rather, um, that's fine because, but it shouldn't have an emotional impact. It shouldn't make you miserable, but it does tend to have that impact on us human beings, uh, very naturally. And I was just curious, like, so in terms of like, you know, the age making you feel like irrelevant, just in terms, do you mean your friends or the people you're talking with, they, they just interrupt you? Like they just don't have the capacity to like, 
listen and then yeah what what i'd say is probably to a younger age group but probably you know you kind of get the feeling i'm just the old man yeah okay yeah just the general yeah feeling that you you're no longer the young gun (laughs) yeah and like you know like you know probably looked at a different way yeah. It's funny, but I've had other experiences that totally went against that. So I had an experience where I was in a workplace. So I was the the experienced person, the wiser person, and everyone was starting to look for me. So yeah. I kind of turned around. It absolutely dumped that on the head. And I'm like, well, I'm thinking this the wrong way. Maybe it's just the, because of the way I, my age and the way I look, people just treat me differently. You know what I mean? Now, when yeah. I was younger, people would take my words a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's 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 interesting because like we we play different roles, right? So it's like even though I am still um, uh, relatively young, it's good to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I'm actually um, yeah. I, I had to mature as well because like, I felt when I got to thirty, I was miserable when I thirty. Yeah. Because I felt like I felt like that I had to mature very quickly. I right. Was still playing my, you know, like university. That I mean, I. I wasn't at university, but I had friends at university. I went to this. Yeah. Like when you're 18, so 22, you're drinking. You're yeah, yeah. You're a lot, you know. Absolutely. But, but I, was still, I was still working, and I was still doing the weekend, you know, living for Friday and Saturdays and going out. But when I got a 30, that was kind of a change for me. That was like, I better change it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't keep doing this. Yeah, well, and it's we've got these like uh, cultural, um, you know, similes that we say as well, like you know, uh, midlife crisis or, or and like these sayings, right? Um, you know, so clearly we know this on a cultural level, we feel it. And also, I just wanted to say about how you know, getting older, you sort of notice that maybe people just treat you differently, like you're a bit more uh, wiser. I think that's that's true because um, even though I am 25, uh, I do a lot of tutoring and. Um, in terms of uh, senior English in Australia here, I help with you know, essay writing and um, persuasion, poetry, you know, all the usual stuff in our curriculum. And it's interesting because not too long ago, I was a student and now to be in the role of a authority figure where you're mentoring, you're sharing wisdom. It's, it's just that we play so many different roles over the course of like a, a long life, right? And um, we're never just one thing. Um, like the Buddhists have this, uh, especially in Zen Buddhism, there's this real feeling that the the guru is not a, not a guru unless you make him a guru. And he's going to keep, you know, Alan Watts talks a lot about this, if you're interested in, in going. Uh, have you heard of Alan Watts, by the way? he's a, I think he's from the UK. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's a... I might have heard of him or heard something about him, but he's not, I'm not aware of his Okay, yeah, yeah. He talk, I think um, he talks a lot uh, in America, so he sort of had that, you know, um, that uh, UK thing in America work because the Americans are a little, uh, they, they just get, you know, um, <laughs> they, they could be uh, amazed by any Brit, can't they? Uh, but anyway, he, he was giving talks in the 60s and the 70s, and he's a beautiful orator, and he talks a lot about these metaphysical, um, philosophical issues that have to do with... Uh, you know, why do human beings do these things? Why do we play music? Why do we uh, make beautiful uh, sculptures? And, and and it really comes back to this feeling that we play so many different roles and we have so much to express. And, and part of it's just doing it for the sake of doing it, maybe. You know, we don't need this ultimate justification to just get out of bed every morning. Um, whereas a religious person might need the uh, feeling that God is really looking after them and that their faith needs to be strong. And that And that's not something I begrudge either. Like, I've actually gotten to the point where I'm not in my atheism, I'm not judgmental of that. I'm, I don't 
like I just say to each their own in that respect. As long as you're not using that religion to harm others, to to uh, to do anything to someone else, what what's in my business, right? Um, I wonder, Brett, do you have any thoughts about that? Like in terms of how your atheism is uh, maybe develops, or or uh, do you think it's important to sort of call out religious people uh, on their uh, ideas? Well, I, I've probably gone through different phases with this. At yeah. the beginning, yeah, I couldn't. I, I, I was like, why can't you see what I'm seeing? Sort of thing. Mm. Why, why are you and, and like trying to get people to think about you know you know. I have got to a point where I've, I've, I've not given up on that. What I, what I wait for is conversations to start like that. So if someone says to me, Brett, do you believe in God? I, I'm honest. Um, I always state first that as an atheist, an atheist's job is never to convert anyone. <laughs> All our job is, is to defend our position, our, or either our beliefs or non-beliefs in whatever it is. And, you know, I, I've gone to that. I've, I've softened right up because I've, I've found what all I was doing was either... If I was going too hard, I was hardening their line, mm. you know, um, or or I was going into these circular arguments about the book, about my fa- about their faith, and never really ever getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, especially when people uh, use a different term. You know, I mean, faith to me just means blind belief without faith or rationale. But and I can't get beyond that definition. Right, I'm, my brain will never be able to go beyond that definition but Did, to someone else they tried to explain some undefined sort of defi- you know definition of faith and it's some weird thing that they and so so the, half of my arguments with people just go around in circles yeah so yeah I end up just doing this is just defending why um, and then telling and, and I end up come to a point please don't try and say to me oh, I can prove it through a book or through my faith <laughs> <laughs> or through stories so I get I, I get to that. So it, yeah. these conversations end very quickly. Yes. I do, ask, yeah. I do ask them sometimes to have thinking exercises. You know, sort of think why why is it deter- your religion's determined on what region of the world you live? You know, live in a little things like that. Now. I've I've tried to keep because I've tried to go. On, you know, maybe you know I, I don't know if you heard of uh, Matt Dillon Huntley. I, I, I always listen to him. No. I don't know if you heard of him. Right. It's a good YouTube channel. Channel uh, they have a show every Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's check it out. Right, it's called um, the Atheist Experience. Matt Dillahunty, and basically all it is is a call-in show, and um, people ring in like fierce atheists as well, but they try to get as much fierce as well. And because they're they're based in Austin, in um, in Texas, which is a very, I mean, they are very religiously fundamentalists I'd, I'd say in Austin like, yeah yeah and Southern Baptists yeah um, you know like uh, sorry there's some uh, some real some Bible really, thumpers yeah <laughs> yeah so do you get some really interesting arguments and you know sometimes you can't get beyond the premises I must admit but some of yes. them just end up hanging up on because yeah like you know what they, they, I find with a lot of religious people they'll come in and try do you know what do you? What's your definition? Is you no. Know, what do you think of the definition of this word is before they even move on to before they try and present an argument? Yes, yes, because it's not so necessarily uh, logical. Yes, it's yeah. not. It's... So they're trying. They're, they're trying to pin down like whoever they're, they're talking to with. Just it's, some of it can be a bit too right. Much, but some of it is probably interesting. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that the the, the guy is he um, a philosophy guy? Is he like a skeptic guy? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, he, he, he's debated quite. I think he de- he's debated like um, Jordan Peterson. Oh yeah. Um, he he is one of the. He did go on tour with the with the four pop. What they call a four was it the whole? Yeah, horseman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, he has got connections with Christopher Hitchens, mm. maybe loosely. Um, and and I think debate maybe Sam Cedar. I'm not too sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting because, like, in like, terms of the uh, atheist stuff, you know, it really did have a moment there, and I think it's really it's it's honestly been a very good contribution. I shouldn't um, sell it too short, but um, I think it's very interesting uh, what you say, Brett, especially with about ideas of faith and. Um, the next text might uh, address this a little bit because it's, it's a Buddhist one. And faith is a very metaphysical idea because what your definition was um, uh, belief, um, blind belief or ra- rationale, is that what you said? A blind belief, no, no evidence or, yeah. or without, rationale, yeah. without rationale. Without rationale. Yeah, and, and it's because faith is like much more in a participatory ki- a kind of um, category of knowledge. Like it's not, it's not a logical... Um, proposition it's 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 something beyond that perhaps and so that's when philosophers i think can actually do something very useful with metaphysics and start to speculate uh because you know not not to be cheeky about it but there is the notion that do we really know these scientific facts have you looked in the hubble telescope and you know what do we have a kind of faith in authority figures that we rely on for knowledge i don't know you know that these are very interesting questions right From um, you, you talk about faith. I have to have faith in some people. Yeah. Um, because, like uh, as I said, I told you before, I'm quite not very well educated. Left school, and barely been out to read or or, or spell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of my knowledge has to come from people. So I have to have conversations. Faith yeah. in some pe- in in people. And what yeah. They say. And after I also have faith in my kind of like how can you put it? my bullshit detector <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly you know, yeah and, and, you know so so i do believe there is that that sort of kind of faith, you know like kind of faith in that there's something you know as you said earlier sky god looking over us yeah I, 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 I don't even know how people could actually use the word faith for that it's um it, it is uh it's hard for once once you kind of um you know it's like atheism not even once right like once you kind of step out it's hard to find your way back there isn't it uh to that kind of mindset um but we might move on to the next text here brett but thank you so much for your comments man it's been great chatting to you from scotland wow um isn't it great with technology what we can do um and have these chats well i'm gonna follow i'm gonna i, I haven't subscribed to you i'm gonna do that right now oh thank you man Listen to, I'd like to listen to you again. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope you come back and, and ask another question or contribute your thoughts again. It's been really great talking to you, Brett. Thank you. You too, pal. Have a nice evening. Yeah, bye you bye. too. Bye-bye. Or, or daytime, whatever it is. Whatever it is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. See you next time, Brett. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's see. There we go. Okay. All right. Let's move on to... Um, that was great. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Brett. Um, let me insert you back into the cup here my tripod and we can continue. Um, that was beautiful. Thank you for that, Brett. Uh, and being my first caller on fireside philosophy. What a lovely discussion that was still recording. Nothing's broken. Isn't that wonderful? Um, uh, we are all sailing on uh, nicely. So, you know, I thought what I might do today was a few texts, but we just, uh, you know, I don't want to go on too long and do have a rest of the day to do. And also I feel like I don't want to just be boring and drone on. So, Maybe what we'll do is I will 
leave the Buddhist text for next time because I think Buddhism may require a bit more. Uh, maybe that could be its own episode. We might do Nihilism and the Meaning of Life Part 2 where we focus on uh, the Buddhist approach. And instead, it, we might go straight into Thomas Nagel, uh, who is an American philosopher uh, and wrote this really interesting book called Mortal Questions. Um, they put that book away. I got the book for nothing. That's okay. Uh, and this is a good contrast to the essay I wrote because honestly, I was I was thinking a lot about this essay when I wrote mine. And he's called uh, this one is a one of the chapters in the book of uh, Mortal Questions, and and the book's called Mortal Questions, as you could probably deduce. It is addressing a lot of these existential questions: death, um, identity, moral luck is another one, which is just really interesting. The concept that you know. Um, maybe we've all, uh, you know, for instance, maybe this isn't true today, but certainly in Australia, there's much tighter laws now, but go back 30, 40 years, we've probably all done a little bit of a drink drive, maybe, you know, not too much, but we've, we've risked it. And moral luck is the idea that person A might get home safe and no problem. And he's had just as much as to drink as person B, but person B, when he was driving home, someone just happened to be in the road and he happened to hit them and their life happens to be destroyed as a result. So moral luck is something that we can't really, you know, um, account for. And yet it changes our life in, you know, really significant ways. Um, the moral luck of the person that looked both ways to cross the road and maybe someone else also looked both ways to cross the road, but then a bus came flying around the corner. Um, it's like you did the right thing or you did the wrong thing and yet you either got away with it or you were punished. And it's kind of this randomness in the universe that we have to, um, sort of address and be aware of. Um, especially if you're going to be, believe in nihilism, the idea that, you know, that, uh, the, there is no meaning to life. There is no meaning to our suffering. There is no meaning to our pleasure. Um, you kind of have to account for these random acts of universal uh, luck. But anyway, this essay is called The Absurd, and it's capturing the feeling of nihilism. The absurd is basically what um, Nagel thinks that feeling is. I would say it's the same feeling. He's calling it the absurd because it's the feeling that life is absurd as well. It, it is bound up in this uh, philosophical school of thought because... If we think that life is meaningless, then we also might say life is absurd. It's absurd that I have to be this uh, ape primordial being and dragoon my body through all these, uh, you know, a cubicle job and, or if I'm doing that or, um, you know, the job I have doing tutoring. It's like, okay, I got to do this again. And um, thankfully in my job, I get to see a lot of young people develop. So I get the strong passage of time showing me, you know, that we're having an impact and we're doing things. But there are certainly many jobs out there that you do that you don't get that feeling. It does feel like the same sort of rhythmic um, and uh, dull experience. So Nagel is going to address this feeling and we might read um, certain excerpts. It's a pretty long essay, so we won't read the whole thing, but we'll read most of it and we'll see again if there's any opportunities for dialogue. Um, I'll open it up on the app. Uh, but here we go. The Absurd by Thomas Nagel. He says, quote, Most people feel on occasion that life is absurd, and some feel it vividly and continually. Yet the reasons usually offered in defense of this conviction are patently inadequate. They could not really explain why life is absurd. Why then do they provide a natural expression for the sense that it is? Consider some examples. It is often remarked that nothing we do now will matter in a million years. But if that is true, then by the same token, nothing that will be the case in a million years matters now. 
In particular, it does not matter now that in a million years, nothing we do will matter. Moreover, even if what we did now were going to matter in a million years, how could we keep, how could that keep our present concerns from being absurd? If their mattering now is not enough to accomplish that, how would it help if they mattered a million years from now? Um, end quote there, I'll just bracket out. So what he's saying is like often one reason said in defense of this feeling that life is absurd is that people will say, well, in a million years, it won't matter if we, um, you know, it won't matter if we end poverty. It won't matter if we cure all these diseases, if we find a cure for cancer. Who cares? In a million years, it won't matter. Nagel's saying, well, if that's the case, then it doesn't matter now either. So why do anything? <laughs> Again, he's sort of pointing out that um, this, this feeling um, of nihilism or of absurdity or of meaninglessness can just cause us to think in ways that gets us to be highly impractical and often the antidote to these feelings of absurdity is to become more practical, to be, to be more pragmatic, meaning task focused, just to be like, well, let's not just think about it. Let's not think about it because it's not a logical thing. It's just, this is what I do. This is the, this, I have to participate in order to, to live uh, my life. So he goes on and gives you some more examples. So quote, it is often remarked that nothing, uh, sorry, oh, whether we whether what we do now uh, will matter in a million years could make the crucial difference only if it's mattering uh, only if it's mattering in a million years depended on its mattering period but then to deny whatever happens now will matter in a million years is to beg the question against its mattering for the sense one cannot know that it will not matter in a million years uh, someone now is happy or miserable without knowing that it does not matter, period. What we say to convey the absurdity of our lives often has to do with space or time. We are tiny specks in the, uni in the infinite vastness of the universe. Our lives are mere instants, even on a geological timescale, let alone a cosmic one. We will all be dead any minute, <laughs> end quote. So the geological timescale would be the Earth, which is something approximating 4 billion years old. And the cosmic one would be the uh, cosmos itself, cosmos meaning the whole universe, universe, the whole uh, one system. Um, and that's approximately, as the scientists say, I do not know, of course, I don't do the, exper the experiment, 13.8 uh, billion years old. And so this creates a very um, claustrophobic feeling, <laughs> perhaps, you know, uh, a feeling of just being kind of squashed by the vastness of space and time, but Nagel says this is not an issue because, quote, of course, none of these evident facts can be what makes life absurd if it is absurd. For supposed we lived forever. Would not a life that is absurd if it lasts 70 years be infinitely absurd if it lasted through eternity? And if our lives, lives are absurd given our present size, why would there be any less absurd if we filled the universe, either because we were larger or because the universe was smaller? Reflection on our minuteness and brevity appears to be intimately connected with the sense that life is meaningless, but it is not clear what the connection is. Another inadequate argument is that because we are going to die, all chains of justification must leave off in midair. One studies and works to earn money to pay for clothing, housing, entertainment, food, to sustain oneself from year to year, perhaps to support a family and pursue a career. But to what final end? All of it is an elaborate journey leading nowhere. One will also have some effect on other people as well, but that simply reproduces the problem, for they will have to die too. There are several replies to this argument. All right, so I'll just, maybe I'll quote, uh, end quote there. 
just to highlight what he's saying, he is addressing that nihilism directly. All chains of justification must leave off in midair. That's the feeling of nihilism, that we cannot just, if there's no God, if there's no clear design to this universe and we can recognize the randomness, the suffering, uh, the evil, right? There really is evil. There really is malevolence. And we can feel despair about that, cosmic despair, because why would God make a make a world where there's evil? Oh, no. Well, maybe the religious response to that would be, well, because we need evil to, to know what good is. We need to transcend evil and to and to battle evil in a way so that evil is a gift or um, uh, slothfulness and wrath and, and anger and jealousy. These are gifts because they inform us as to uh, what the good is, what the right path is. That's certainly a Buddhist response, but um, that is also um, a faith-based response, you might say, too, because uh, the nihilist has a good defense against that. But Nagel's saying, why is it the case that all those justifications have to leave off in midair? And he's got some very interesting arguments to reply with. So we'll go into that. Um, um, and I will go back and look and see if I'm still... Okay, we're going. Okay. I'm very uh, paranoid that when my phone locks, <laughs> that the uh, that the whole system shuts down because I know Colin's had a lot of issues on Android. So we're all good though. Another inadequate just to no, know we've done that. <laughs> I think it's time to get a bit tired. All right. First life does not consist of a sequence of activities, each of which, which has its own purpose, some latter member of the sequence. So he's going to, he's going to talk about an argument right now that says, even though we can't justify the universe, you can't even justify the things you do in your own life to an extent, to a very plausible, convincing extent. So here's what he says. Chains of justification come repeatedly to an end within life, and whether the person as a whole can be justified, whether the process as a whole can be justified, has no bearing on the finality of these endpoints. No further justification is needed to make it reasonable to take an aspirin for a headache, to attend an exhibition of the work of a painter one admires, to stop a child from putting a hand on a hot stove. No larger context or further purpose is needed to prevent these acts from being pointless. Even if someone wished to supply a further justification for pursuing all the things in life that are commonly regarded as self-justifying, that justification would have to end somewhere too. If nothing can justify, unless it is justified in terms of something outside itself, which is also justified, then an infinite regress occurs and no chain of justification can be complete. Oh, what a mouthful. End quote. So really what he's saying there, the regress point is not necessarily, um, all he's saying there is that many people will say who are religious in the Abrahamic traditions, uh, um, various forms of Christianity, Catholicism, um, uh, Islam, and, um, and, and, uh, um, Jew Jewish people <laughs> blanking on your, your doctrine, the Old Testament. Um, basically, he's saying that part, one of the issues with these ideas of a God is that now you need to justify the God. <laughs> so who made the God? Who, uh, If God designed the universe, well, who designed the God that designed the universe? He's pointing out that infinite uh, regress. And the, the alternative is... No one designed the universe. The universe is self-justifying. And this is a hard concept to wrap your head around initially, particularly if you are a religious person who has been brought up intellectually from the cradle to think that um, the world had to be designed in such and such a way. Well, no, it could be totally self-justifying, just like when you take an aspirin for a headache, just like when you dance at a concert. You don't do that for any 
purpose. Maybe there's an, uh, and you could have some evolutionary argument that we're doing that to attract a mate. Sure. I mean, there's that, uh, there's that aspect to it, but you know, we see bees that do their little dance to signal that, um, there are, uh, you know, honey and, and hives and a good place for a hive to be built. I believe they do their little waggle. Um, so there are obviously evolutionary reasons for these things, but they do feel like we do them because they're pleasurable. They're just fun. It's fun to dance to music. It's fun to sing. It's fun to um, laugh and and frolic with uh, other friends and and other you know people that you can relate to. Um, it's fun. Well, not even just fun. It's uh, satisfying and fulfilling to have a pet that you take care of that relies on you, and probably more so to have a child. Though I do not know about that experience. Um, and so. Yeah, just to clarify what he's saying. Let's go back. Quote. Even if someone wanted to, wished to supply a further justification for pursuing all the things in life that are commonly regarded as self-justifying, that justification... Oh, God. I need to stop doing that. Okay, sorry. I keep repeating myself. Um, okay, I think this is where we are. Since justifications... Because what I do is I scroll up to then, like, review it, and then I just have a brain fart. <laughs> so I'm going to get better at this, guys. This is my first episode. So hopefully if you're... um listening on YouTube, it's not too hard. I might, I might edit some of this down. Since justifications must come to an end somewhere, nothing is gained by denying that they end where they appear to within life, or by trying to subsume the multiple, often trivial, ordinary justifications of action under a single controlling life scheme. We can be satisfied more easily than that. In fact, though it's a misrepresentation of the process of justification, the argument makes a vacuous demand. And I use that word too, it just means empty, bereft of meaning, really. And of course, a nihilist would say that because that's the whole point. It insists that the reasons available within life are incomplete, but suggests thereby that all reasons that come to an end are incomplete. This makes it impossible to supply any reasons at all. The standard arguments for absurdity appear, therefore, to fail as arguments, yet I believe they attempt to express something that is difficult to state, but fundamentally correct. Okay, end quote. So that's what he, so this this is why this essay is a really interesting uh, analysis by Nagel because he's not saying that this absurd feeling isn't real. He's not saying that it's not genuine. He's not saying that it doesn't represent something about our uh, position in the cosmos. He's just saying that the arguments usually marshaled in defense of this feeling are just not really that good. Um, we're going to die, so therefore life is absurd. Well, not really, because if you live forever, it'd still be absurd. Um, you know, it's not going to matter in a million years. Well, it doesn't matter what you do now then, so that's absurd. Uh, the, the, the idea of, a, of being absurd is absurd. Let's keep going, because he has more to say. Quote, In ordinary life, a situation is absurd when it includes a conspicuous dis discrepancy between pretension or aspiration and reality. Someone gives a complicated speech in support of a motion that has already been passed. A notorious criminal is made president of a major philanthropic foundation. You declare your love over the telephone to a recorded announcement. As you are being knighted, your pants fall down. So these are the classic examples of absurdity when our reaction to a situation is a mismatch for the context of what's appropriate. And this is important to uh, have a good understanding of, a, a really robust understanding of absurdity because Nagel's going to use that definition he's just laid out to position us in the cosmos to say, of course, that situation is absurd because we're self-aware primordial beings. We're the one of, we're, as far as we know, we're the only self-aware creatures that know these facts about immortality. And if you took an ant um, and you gave him self-consciousness to this degree, he would, Nagel would say that life then becomes also absurd. 
Um, so his concept of absurdity is really central to why we might feel that life is fundamentally meaningless. We're going to scroll a little further on into the essay because now he's going to really nail that point home about how our lives are absurd because we have to simultaneously live in a paradox of sincerity, but also being able to ironically doubt the whole project and, and really feel that life is meaningless. We, could, we have to do both at the same time, and yet um, we can't really come to a certain conclusion on the matter. So he says, quote, We cannot live human lives without energy and attention, not without making choices which show that we take some things more seriously than others. Yet, we have always available a point of view outside the particular form of our lives from which the seriousness appears gratuitous or unnecessary. These two inescapable viewpoints collide in us, and that is what makes life absurd. It is absurd because we ignore the doubts that we know cannot be settled, continuing to live with nearly undiminished seriousness in spite of them. We take ourselves seriously whether we, lead, whether we lead serious lives or not, and whether we are concerned primarily with fame, pleasure, virtues, luxury, triumph, beauty, justice, knowledge, salvation, or mere survival. If we take other people seriously and devote ourselves to them, that only multiplies the problem. End quote. So I'm going to keep going. I don't want to say too much here because this is a Nagel's on a roll. But what he's saying there is that like often people will say, well, you can find meaning in the service of others. And it's like, well, that's a great feeling and that's a good feeling. And I wouldn't say you shouldn't nurture that feeling and actually do that. But in logically saying from the nihilist's point of view, he's sort of giving the, um, what we call the steel man argument in the philosophy, the best representation of the argument. He's saying that only multiplies the problem from the nihilist point of view, because from the nihilist point of view, from the person who thinks life is meaningless or absurd. Um, and so why do anything? He's sort of, or he or she is sort of saying, um, well, if you do, if you find that in other people, they're going to die too. Their, their lives are also meaningless. It only multiplies the problem. And that, that's on the level of, you know, country. And, and that's why it's an existential um, term as well. Existential nihilism, just to clarify from the beginning. That's the fundamental feeling that life uh, doesn't have a fundamental justification or meaning. So Nagel's fully uh, addressing that. He says, quote, human life is full of effort, plans, calculation, success, and failure. If we pursue our lives with varying degrees of sloth and energy, it would be different if we could not step back and reflect on the process, but were merely led from impulse to impulse without self-consciousness. But human beings do not act solely on impulse. They are prudent. They reflect they weigh consequences. They ask whether what they are doing is worthwhile. Not only are their lives full of particular choices that hang together in larger activities with temporal structure, they also, they also decide in the broadest terms what to pursue and what to avoid, what the priorities among their various aims should be, and what kind of people they want to be or become. Some men are faced with choices by the large decisions they make from time to time. Some merely by reflection over the course of their lives are taking as the product of countless small decisions. They decide whom to marry, what profession to follow, whether to join the country club or the resistance. Or they may just wonder why they go on being a salesman or academics or taxi drivers and then stop thinking about it after a certain period of inconclusive reflection. All right, we'll go a little further. The fact is so obvious that it is hard to find extraordinary and important. Each of us lives his own life. 
lives with himself 24 hours a day. What else is he supposed to do? Live someone else's life? Yet humans have the special capacity to step back and survey themselves, and the lives to which they are committed, and with that detached amazement, which comes from watching an ant struggle up a heap of sand, without developing the illusion that they are able to escape from their highly specific and idiosyncratic position. They can view it under subspecies eternititis, and the view is at once sobering and comical, end quote. So I'm going to try to say that again. It's a Latin phrase, so and I do not know Latin, so pardon my French. Um, but it's uh, pronounced subspecies eternititis, and it's um, spelled A-E-T-E-N-I-T-A-T-I-S, subspecies eternititis. The Latin phrase means under the, under the view of eternity. So he is saying that uh, we cannot... Once we are aware of the fact that we can basically see ourselves as the ant pushing up dirt up an anthill, with the analogy being, you know, driving to work and having to work a day job and then maybe just spending that money frivolously on some vices, right? Um, He is saying that situation is highly um, uh, ironic and comical because when we view it under the the guise of eternity, under the view of eternity, subspecies eternititis, we are, we just can't help but think, what's the point? It just feels ridiculous. It feels absurd. That It feels like the knight having his pants fall down. And it's like, what? I'm doing all of this in this cosmos that's crazy and magnificent and just um, invigorated and energetic and just there's billions of planets with obviously life forms thriving on them. And why should I, and I still have to go to work. I still have to put on a suit. I still have to like, you know, um, whatever menial, trivial thing we have to do. It becomes very clear when we start to um, make the example more uh, transparent, right? So Nagel's, it's, I like, I love this essay because it's just, it's just almost comical in its tone. It makes, it may, I giggled certainly the first few times I read this. Um, and it's also quite dense too. So I'm happy. That's why I think it's a good one to do for this first episode. It's an essay I'm very familiar with and it actually, it is quite difficult to get a good grasp of it the first time you read it. So I'm happy to uh, translate a few of these excerpts. We'll come down to when he starts talking about um, the philosopher Albert Camus, who um, described in his Myth of Sisyphus the notion that one response to the nihilist feeling that life is miserable and suffering or absurd is to push the boulder up the hill and sort of shake your fist at the god, right? That was Albert Camus' response, is that despite the nihilism we feel, despite the nothingness, the feeling of... um, that we've described in all sorts of ways. What's some of the synonyms, Jay? What can you think of? Um, the life being bereft of meaning, life being um, uh, lacking a substance, a substantial, uh, tangible, self-justifying, clear purpose that I was trying to get at in my essay, right? When I said, like, imagine you got a brochure at birth that said, here's your plan, here's your purpose, here's what you have to do. This has been cosmically, um, this is like the tablet that has been given to you by the uh, creator, it's himself or herself or itself. Um, yeah, so so that's one approach is to sort of uh, shake your fist at the God for not giving you a plan and sort of despite that, sort of um, toughen yourself through it. It's a very stoic idea as well. And I think a lot of men are attracted to that um, as an approach because it's a very kind of warrior mindset. So here's Nagel's response to Camus. Nagel says, quote, 
What makes doubt inescapable with regard to the limited aims of individual life also make it inescapable with regard to any larger purpose that encourages the sense that life is meaningful. Once the fundamental doubt has begun, it cannot be laid to rest. Camus maintains in the myth of Sisyphus that the absurd arises because the world fails to meet our demands for meaning. This suggests that the world might satisfy these demands if it were different. But now we can see this is not the case. There does not appear to be any conceivable world containing us about which unsettled doubts could not arise. And I just want to pause there because very briefly, he's basically saying if we can't even imagine a world where we wouldn't feel a little bit like life is absurd, maybe life is meaning meaningless, if we couldn't even have that doubt, then you can't even imagine what that world would be. Even if there was a God who looked after us, who took care of us, if, the, if there was a leader of the simulation who was, you know, um, giving us all the instructions and he could prove to us he existed and, and, they, and he did that, uh, it still wouldn't mean that we wouldn't doubt our overall project. We'd be like, well, what does this guy know, right? Like, you know, we'd have, we'd have something to say because we're human beings, we're self-aware. It's like, that's almost our beautiful tool and that's almost our superpower, you might want to say, if you were being romantic, which of course I am not. Um, so let's keep going. And he says, but now we can see this is not the case. There does not appear to be any conceivable world containing us about which the unsettled doubts could not arise. Consequently, the absurdity of our situation derives not from a collision between our expectations in the world, but from a collision within ourselves. And that's a very powerful point. I think maybe we might end on, unless I want to find out one more excerpt, but basically that's the idea. That's kind of his contention. It's about us. It's about our. It's about our unique mental, uh, the mental, the unique mental position we have in this cosmos. The unique consciousness we have. The kind of consciousness that we have. The perceptions that we have. Um, and he says, with regards to like a, a mouse, if you took a mouse and you gave it self consciousness, then its life would become absurd. But before that, it is just being driven by impulse. And if we were being driven by impulse, then there'd be no issue. It's the whole point that we can be self-aware. We can make these grander, uh, more abstract um, ideas. We can connect them. We can we can dialogue about them. We can create art about them. We can create music and painting and sculptures and and do all these really uh, interesting things. So we might we might end on um, the last paragraph, which I think is a really good paragraph too, because um, it sort of gets to the notion of. Um, so he talks about the mouse. Why is the life of a mouse not absurd? The orbit of the moon is not absurd either, but that involves no striving or aims at all. A mouse, however, has to work to stay alive, yet he is not absurd because he lacks the capacities for self-consciousness and self-transcendence that would enable him to see that he is only a mouse. If it did happen, his life would become absurd, since self-awareness would not make him cease to be a mouse and would not enable him to rise above his mousely strivings. Bringing his newfound self-consciousness with him, he would have to return to his meager yet frantic life, full of doubts that he was unable to answer, but also full of purposes that he was unable to abandon. Given that the transcend transcendental step, the transcendental step is, of course, the um, the awareness we can have about our own, the doubts we can have about our um, meaning. Given that the transcendental step is natural to us humans, we can avoid it by refusing to take this. Can we avoid it by refusing to take that step and remaining entirely within our subliminal lives? Well, we cannot refuse consciously. For to do so, we would have to adopt. We would have to be aware of the viewpoint we are refusing to adopt. Okay, so he goes on to say that that like we're sort of stuck with this, um, and maybe there, 
Um, he says, he does sort of say there are maybe certain Oriental religions that might address this, which Oriental is a funny, I guess that's sort of a dated term now, but um, I think he's clearly referring to like Buddhism there. And, and um, but he has his doubts about that, but certainly we'll come to that, I think, another time. And we'll end the essay here. I love this phrase. I love this phrase. He says, quote, that is the main condition of absurdity. The dragooning of an unconvinced transcendent Tra- Let me say that again. The dragooning of an unconvinced transcendent consciousness into the service of an imminent limited enterprise like a human life. So I butchered it a little bit, but it's a very nice phrase. The dragooning of an unconvinced transcendent consciousness. He's saying that like simultaneously we have these doubts, but we wouldn't have the doubts if we hadn't already transcended. <laughs> so it's like, it's quite a paradox. Um, and then he goes to say, he responds to Camus. He says, Camus, not on uniformly good grounds, rejects suicide and the other solutions he regards as escapist. So one one idea that the nihilist has is that while well, we can commit suicide and escape these these uh, doubts, these feelings of uh, misery. And that's maybe, uh, Camus says, no, we have to sort of shake our fist. And Nagel responds to this by saying, Quote, what he recommends is defiance or scorn. We can salvage our dignity. He appears to believe by shaking a fist at the world, which is deaf to our pleas and continuing to live in spite of it. This will not make our lives unabsurd, but it will lend them to a certain nobility, perhaps. Nagel doesn't agree. He says, quote, this seems to me romantic and slightly self-pitying. Our absurdity warrants neither that much distress nor that much defiance. At the risk of falling into romanticism by a different route, I would argue that absurdity is one of the most human things about us, a manifestation of our most advanced and interesting characteristics. Like skepticism in epistemology, it is possible only because we possess a certain kind of insight, the capacity to transcend ourselves in thought. If a sense of the absurd is a way of perceiving our true situation, then what reason can we have to resent or escape it? Like the capacity for epistemological skepticism, it results from the ability to understand our human limitations. It need not be a matter for agony unless we make it so. Nor need it evoke a defiant contempt of fate that allows us to feel brave or proud. Such dramatics, even if carried on in private, betray a failure to appreciate the cosmic unimportance of the situation. If subspecies Eternititis, there, if, if we can view ourselves under the uh, view of eternity, then there is no reason to believe that anything matters. Then that doesn't matter either. And we can approach our absurd lies with, with irony instead of heroism or despair. End quote. Okay, let's unlock the phone and make sure I'm still uh, alive here. Oh, okay, I think we're still alive. Good, good, good. So that's the end of his essay there. I think I just want to say a couple of things and then... Um, uh, Brett, if you want to jump on and, and give your thoughts on that, mate, as we wrap up here, I'm happy to do that. If not, that's all good too. Um, I just want to say that last part of what he's saying is very interesting and it's kind of gets to the heart of the nihilist problem because if you're feeling misery as a result of nihilism or you're finding that your behaviors have become less, you know, more apathetic, meaning you're indifferent, you're not really, you don't really have an emotional or, or tangible connection to the good that you can do, the, 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 the good feelings and experiences you can share. Um, there's just a, uh, a kind of gloominess to it, right? What he's saying, Nagel, is that we can be ironic about that. We don't have to be, we don't have to despair and we don't have to be uh, deluded into heroism, which is what Camus was saying. If we sort of push the boulder up the hill like Sisyphus and sort of get it to the top and watch it fall down and go, ah, I'm going to do it again because, you know, um, uh, you know, I got to fight my way through this life. It's like, well, that doesn't seem 
really that sustainable either because that's going to lead to you know you're making it dramatic by doing that you're building you're you're basically making it dramatic by another uh another route so instead of instead of needlessly despairing you're being needlessly um you know a bit uh theatrical about the uh, about your life now i want to say though that's not necessarily a bad thing like if the if you're being energized by that to like you know um i often hear joe rogan will say something like you know be the main character in your, be the hero in your movie. What would the hero do at this point? Would the hero, you know, um, choose to eat Doritos and, and uh, you know, play video games? Or does, it, does the hero, you know, make a fundamental change for the better, like right now and call that person up and tell them that you love them and, you know, starts to, you know, basically it's a way of reframing your mind, right? And making you a little more sensitive to the possibilities that you have right in front of you. And there's something to, to say about that. But we shouldn't make it like existential. Our life shouldn't be a battle because we can't be battling for the whole time. You know, there's too many parts of our life where we have to be vulnerable and we have to be, you know, especially with either infancy or old age, we, we, we're helplessly vulnerable. vulnerable. And um, Nagel is saying we can be ironic in that situation. We can sort of acknowledge that, well, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter. Let's just entertain the notion that it doesn't matter. What does that mean? Does that mean we do nothing? Does that mean we don't love? We don't dance? We don't paint? We don't sculpt? We don't do all the interesting things that human beings do? We don't sit around a fire and play a guitar or hit some bongos and, and do a little a jig? Um, we do it because it's intrinsically self-justifying and pleasurable. And I think that's really the only answer to the nihilists because they have a pretty solid philosophical case. That's really the interesting thing about it. And we're going to look at the Buddhists uh, next time and maybe see how they address the issue. But um, we might we might leave it there. Um, so, yeah, we could we could wrap it up. I think um, I've uh, waffled on long enough and uh, I could use a shower anyway. I just did this straight after a jog. So could use a little wake up shower. And uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, it's a lovely morning here in Australia. Lovely Friday morning and um, enjoy the rest of your day, wherever, wherever you are, whatever you're doing or enjoy your night. Um, thank you to Brett as well. Thank you. I see you down there still, mate. Thank you. Uh, it was great to get a chat with you in. And we hope to see, uh, if you're on YouTube, please download the call-in app and uh, follow Fireside Philosophy. And uh, for the next scheduled episode, you can actually um, see when the next one will be. And uh, I'll be I'll be pretty good at hitting those times, I think. So, uh, and yeah, if you're interested in Buddhist philosophy, if you also you want to comment on this episode, maybe we could do something like um, a little kind of Q&A at the next one where we sort of uh, review and get some thoughts from people. Um, that might be interesting. Anyway, I just love this app. I think it's very interesting. Lots of possibilities. So we might end it there. Thank you everyone for tuning in live and uh, after the show. And we'll, we'll see you next time.